Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello, and welcome to What in Tar Nation, Tar Heel Blog's Hot Take Podcast. On this episode, we're recapping UNC's loss to Virginia and looking ahead to more exciting things for UNC basketball. I'm Tanya Bondurant, and with me, as always, is Brandon Anderson. Brandon, are you sad about football? Are you happy about basketball? What is your mood level? I have no feelings about football anymore, but I'm excited for basketball. Yeah, I feel like it's always this time of year where I am just like fully checked out on college football as a whole. I mean, normally UNC football isn't so much a factor this time of year anyway, but I feel like yesterday's game really allowed us to set our sights on basketball for better or worse. I think a lot of the problem is this year's football team is one of a lot of promise, but not one of a lot of promises. And so basically yesterday was the epitome of one group is going to excite you. The other one is going to frustrate you and ultimately this will be a one-score game ending, and that's exactly what it was. Yeah, I mean, the seven-point difference in the final score was UNC's worst loss of the year, which says a lot, but it's also incredibly frustrating because if you look back on the games they've lost, they lost to Wake Forest by six. They lost to Appalachian State by three. They lost to Clemson by one. They lost to Virginia Tech by two. And they lost to Virginia by seven, which it proves that they were in every game, but they couldn't find a way to get over that last little hump in, in those games. And I think... You know, based on the last couple seasons, you look at that and you're like, hey, you know, we we doubled last year's win total. That's exciting. But when you look at all of those close losses, I think it's easy to still kind of what if things here and there. And that's it's a little deflating. Yeah, it is. And. I think one of the more frustrating things that we've had to deal with over the past few years of Carolina football, and I want to preface it with this, things are much better with Mac Brown in charge. Things are looking really good for next year. Things have 
carried enough promise this year to where it's like we've all been invested in these games. Like it's not like we're just kind of watching it ho hum. We'll just get through this and then get to basketball season. I feel like we've all been watching it with a reasonable amount of excitement. And but when it comes to how these games have went, it hasn't been that much different than the last couple of years other than the fact of it's been more competitive. I feel like I feel like there's always been enough in these games to where it's like if maybe these couple things happen different, UNC wins. Whereas I think before it was more like UNC happened to be close for some mysterious reason that may be of some higher power and this is where we're at. Live with your frustrations. So... I don't know. Like, do I think they can still win a bowl or make it to a bowl game? Yes. Coastal done? Yes. Am I going to be completely locked in for the pick game to the point where I'm just, like, super, super excited? I'm not going to be as excited as I'm going to be for basketball. Yeah, I think the tough part of yesterday was that Despite how the season has gone to this point, they still controlled their destiny in the Coastal. They still had a chance to get back to a rematch against Clemson. And, I mean, Clemson has been on fire since they came to Chapel Hill. So, for all we know, that the rematch could have been an absolute bloodbath that we all expected it to be the first time. But, I mean, it would have been cool to get another chance at them. Unfortunately, barring some miracle, that's that's over. Right. And I put in the recap yesterday that, you know, it's really telling that we can be disappointed that they're not going to win the Coastal. Because if you... Last year, that was not even a conversation. So the fact that we can be disappointed that it turned out this way, I think is really telling of where the program is headed. I don't think we're there yet. I think we said it after the Virginia tech game. It's all maybe that our expectations got a little crazy with the hot start. And we've been having to sort of dial that back to reality every week since then because if you look at the season outside of the South Carolina and Miami games they've only beaten Georgia Tech and Duke and the Duke game was obviously great but it does show that there's like a long way to go to being where we'd like to be Pittsburgh owes us one so you know they need Carolina needs to win that game because you don't want to go into the state game needing a win to right. to get bowl eligibility. But I mean, Pitt is certainly no pushover this year and like I said, if if the football gods are a thing, 
they sure owe us for all the times we stole one under Larry Fedora. It's true. And I think going back to what you were saying about expectations, I think what made it so easy for them to kind of spiral a little bit out of control. Let's just think about who's in the Coastal. Who has been scary in the Coastal? No one. The Coastal has been drunk. It has been drunk. And because it's been so drunk, this was like the perfect year for essentially a rebuild of Carolina football to where they could just try their best and see what happens and honestly could luck their way into an ACC championship game because that's that's really what this has all been about. And right at the beginning of the season, everybody felt like Virginia was the team. And honestly, maybe they are, but also... It seems like they're going to be. It seems like they're going to be. But from what I saw last night, I don't feel like they were necessarily better than Carolina. Oh, they were. You think so? Yeah. I mean, offensively, I think it's close. Yeah. Um, they, they looked just more put together, I think. Um, and, and maybe that's because somehow they were only called for two penalties. And, and maybe that, like, skewed my perception of things but they just seemed more like a well-oiled machine than Carolina does and and that's to be expected because Virginia is not going through the same thing Carolina is going through of like new coaches new schemes new quarterback new everything so they're established right so I think that's to be expected but I saw a team that could very clearly see that they had a path to beat their opponent and did it. And, I mean, that's how we ended up here was that Bryce Perkins picked on Carolina's secondary something fierce. Yeah. And he knew that he could do that and sort of dared them to make a play. And unfortunately, he rolled the dice with his guys and came out on top because the secondary was not able to make those plays. And it sucks because, like, offensively, Carolina hung 539 total yards on the 11th-ranked defense in the country. That is amazing. Right. And that what was that's what was so frustrating about the game was that the defense just could not make a play when they needed to. There's something about these mobile quarterbacks that this defense has been allergic to. And I think that's been one of the bigger frustrations this season and I'll be real honest, if it doesn't get figured out next year, then there's probably a big issue afoot. And that's not anything to – I'm not knocking Jay Bateman's scheme, but what I am saying is, like, you kind of have to have the talent to deal with some of that stuff too. Like, you have to have somebody that's able to chase somebody down on the spot. You have to have cornerbacks that are able to 
deal with the wide receivers, but are also able to, if they're on a short route, to go off of their route and chase down the quarterback and things like that. Like there's there's little things that personnel definitely impacts. And so I think that ultimately what Carolina needs to do from this point is to find those players that can be better than average athletically across kind of across the board, not just like, but anyways, like they need these people that are able to handle these types of players, basically. I mean, I don't even know that it's the players. I, I can't even begin to figure it out. I think my frustration stems from the fact that they didn't seem to make an adjustment at halftime. It didn't seem like anything got better, even though they saw that Perkins was just literally picking the secondary apart. And I know that Bateman's hands are probably tied a bit because your personnel is your personnel. If they're going after Storm Duck, what can you do? You're already shorthanded. It's not like you can rotate in a whole new secondary and and hope for the best, but it just didn't seem like enough happened to sort of try to stem the tide a bit. And the third quarter was where it really fell apart for Carolina because they gave up 21 points. And I don't know. It was just frustrating to see them literally not be able to get off the field when Carolina had a chance to win the game or at least tie the game. And the defense just couldn't make it happen. And I know that there have been more than a couple times this season where the opposite has been true. And the defense has kicked and clawed their way to keep the team in the game and the offense just couldn't make a play. So I don't I'm not saying that the defense is Carolina's problem at all. Because again, the opposite has definitely been true plenty of times this season. But I think in the Virginia Tech game and this game, it was frustrating to a point of like madness to see a quarterback doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and the defense just having no answers for it. Yeah. I mean, that was the situation against Virginia Tech. It was just it was. the quarterback was he, – he ran, like, down their throats. Yeah. And they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, Perkins ran for 112 yards in addition to his 378 passing yards. Um, the receiver, Jana, he had a career day. Um, I think his, like, receptions – he had 13 receptions. That was some kind of, like, record. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like he was targeted so often and came up with it so often that it was almost silly. And I don't know. It was just frustrating to see. And I think the offense did as well as you can possibly expect them to against a defense that good. Um, Sam Howell had a really good game, Um, 353 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions. Deami Brown had an amazing game, 202 yards and three touchdowns. Like, 
it's sad that all of that kind of will be a footnote because they couldn't find a way to win that game. The way that the offense performed was bizarre because if we focus just on basically what we have in front of our faces right now, which is the statistics, then there is zero, like, there's close to zero amount of, like, nitpicking that you could possibly do to where you're like, Carolina deserved to lose this game. Because it's just like, if you put up 31 points, you would hope that that would beat most teams as long as you have a competent defense playing. And no, I'm not calling Carolina's defense incompetent, but I mean, let's face it, last night they weren't playing very competent. With that said, one of the things that Jake Lawrence was pointing out in Slack kind of at the end of the game was the red zone issue. And after we cut, I think you and I discussed it a little bit earlier. I think there is definitely something to that. It's almost like they'll get into the red zone and weird things happen that I don't quite understand. They were, they basically were one through one for three in the red zone. Um, Virginia was a perfect five for five, which goes back to that defensive issue. But do we trust Longo when it comes to the red zone? I definitely feel like the numbers are a bit alarming just because anytime you're ranking in the hundreds in something, it's probably not good. And to... I think it's even more telling when you look at the fact that Phil Longo's Ole Miss teams were similar. Yeah. Which makes me feel like it's more of a pattern than a coincidence. And that's something that needs to be fixed very soon because the red zone play calling has been weird, to be sure. Um, if If you know you're going to go for it on fourth down, you should probably run it on third down. That's just kind of... I mean, I I don't know play calling much at all, but I know that that's what makes sense. Um, there was, I think it was Carolina's final drive when they were up against the clock. They ran it on second down with like 30 seconds to go. And it's like, why why are you running it there? That that does not make sense. You're you're up against the clock. You know that the clock's going to keep running. Like, you're just wasting time. And I don't, again, Phil Longo has paid a good amount of money for his expertise in play calling, and I'm not going to pretend that I know better. I'm just saying that statistically, from a pure number standpoint, Carolina ranks pretty low in red zone efficiency and anytime you're inside 20 yards you should really be scoring more often than not and if you're not then it's either bad decision making or bad play calling or bad execution figure out which one it is and begin to correct it the only thing i'm going to add to that 
is kind of stating the obvious, but if you put up 539 total yards, you better have a percentage better than 33% of the red zone. You would think so. It, it just other, it doesn't make sense. Like, why is it that you get within the 20-yard line and you just completely lose your mind? It's incomprehensible for, to me. Like, it just, yeah, I don't get it. And I feel like that has kind of been something we've seen throughout the season, which, again, the numbers bear that out, where it seems like the strategy changes in the red zone. And it's like, well, the strategy is what you got, what got you into the red zone. So maybe we shouldn't just like abandon that and go with something completely different when that was working. Clearly last night, everything was working. They racked up 539 yards. Maybe you should stick to your plan and execute things the same way that you have the other 80 yards of the field and see what happens. Because apparently changing it up is not working for you. It's not. My last question before we go to commercial break. You were talking about the old Miss situation with Phil Longo, and now we're starting to see that with Carolina. Is this something that can be corrected working with a Hall of Fame coach like Mac Brown, or do you see it as a point of potential stubbornness to where we're just going to be in for a bumpy ride with this entire scheme? I mean, that's the thing. I I don't know. And if you had just told me that Carolina was not good in the red zone flat out, like I would say, eh, you know, it's the first year with a new offensive coordinator. I'm sure they're still working out the kinks. He's got a freshman quarterback. There would be a lot of excuses I could point to with that. I think the thing that makes it concerning to me as a potential pattern is the Ole Miss thing. Is is that just like something inherent to Longo? And I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think we will know the answer to that until maybe this time next year and seeing if it just is something that gets better with time and experience and comfort with what he's working with on the field. I hope that's the case. It really needs to be the case. But the fact that there is that sort of like hanging, nagging thing that's like, this is who he was at Ole Miss too, is at least a little bit concerning to me. I think the one thing that I'll say, I don't, I'm not going to give a specific answer just because I'm kind of like you. I don't really know. But what I will say is that in my, In all of my football watching, I think that one of the things that I've noticed that are pretty consistent when it comes to coordinators is that usually their flaws are very hard to get rid of. Um, There's a few coaches that come to mind. I'm not going to dive too deep into that. Coaches are stubborn. I mean, we saw that with Larry Fedora for years. Yeah. I mean, how many times did we see him refuse to use Elijah Hood? in the red zone, right. and so on and so forth. So if if it is a Phil Longo problem, and Phil Longo is stubborn, he certainly would not be the first nor the last. Right. And it could be that maybe he's 
making some of the right calls down there at times and that there's just an execution issue. It's probably a little bit of both, honestly. Yeah. But, I mean... And that's why I said we might not know until this time next season because yeah. you'll have sophomore Sam Howe. It'll be Longo's second season running this offense. If uh, it's still a problem, then it seems less like a whoops, freshman quarterback's just out there losing his mind a little bit. Yeah. And and more of a systemic thing. Yeah. We won't know until next year for sure. And you know this It's at is, least worth keeping an eye on, for right. sure. This is strictly a talking piece at this point. Like, I hope nobody listening thinks that we're out calling for Phil Longo's job because, no. No. He really shouldn't go anywhere. He's doing a good job. It's just that red zone efficiency is a big issue in football if you're bad at it. And it's one of those things where it's exemplified by all of these close games. If we were getting blown out of the water, then red zone efficiency would be much more of a footnote. But when you're talking about, you know, a season where your biggest loss has been seven points, one red zone trip here or there going the right way could mean the difference in two more wins, maybe more. So it's definitely exemplified by how close this season has been results-wise. I don't. I'm definitely not calling for the dude's head or anything like that, but it is an interesting statistic, and I think it's something to keep an eye on. Um, If Again, if it was just Carolina, I would say, heh, coincidence. There are a hundred reasons why that could be the case, but I think if we're still talking about this next year, I will be much more concerned. Yeah. And there's definitely other layers of this that we can go into, but this isn't a two-hour show. So, Tanya, is this uh, or did you have anything else to discuss about the Virginia game? I think I'm finished with the Virginia game and all of the badness surrounding disappointing football results. Tbh. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that we can. We don't even have to discuss best words to the game because we know what the best and worst were. Best of the offense, worst of the defense. Right. Saved you like ten minutes. Yep. More specifically, the best of Deami Brown. Deami Brown was great. That was amazing. I mean, Hal was great. Hal was great too. Hal and Deami Brown were the best of. Yeah. And the worst of was the secondary. Right. Did it. Those two are going to be the best duo. And one of the best duos. I should correct myself. I mean, I would be if you had said they would be the best of. I'd be like, I will support you in that messaging because I think they could be. Yeah, it's gonna be exciting yeah. to see them next year. Absolutely. All right, we will take a quick commercial break, and then afterwards we will dive into some basketball. Finally, at last. Be right back. All right, and we are back. So Tanya, do you know what time it is? It's basketball time. It's basketball time. I feel bad because on some level we live up to the stereotype of UNC fan where it's like, you don't even care about football. You're just like looking for basketball. All you care about is basketball. You're not like supporting the team. I've I've supported the football team. I will continue to support the football team. I'm not going to lie to you. 
basketball is is where it's at for me. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's somebody that feels a type of way about my appreciation for basketball, but that has just always been a love of mine. It remains a love of mine. It, And I like football. I really like football. I am growing to appreciate Carolina football some, but when November hits, it's just time to jump into some good old Roy Williams doing some fun things in the Dean Smith Center. So, I think it probably depends on which one you kind of grew up focusing on. I know for me, the reason why I became a Carolina fan when I was very young was through basketball. And I can't deny that that part of me has stayed through to now. I like football a lot. Um, I like soccer a lot. I like baseball a lot. But college, there's just something really special about college basketball. And the first day of the season is pretty much like a second Christmas to me. I... I just can't get into anything on the same level the way that I do college basketball. So I'm very excited that it's back. I think it is the best sport that you can watch. Um, And I am really excited to see what this team can do this year. Yeah, absolutely. And with that said, let's jump into it. So there was an exhibition game this past Friday against Winston-Salem State expectedly Carolina won Um, I think it's fair to say that there's not a whole lot that we can take away from that game because there was a lot of weird stuff happening just nothing unexpectedly weird Roy Williams doing what he normally does playing with lineups things like that players kind of getting used to playing with each other that type of thing Um, if I was to take if I were to take any positives out of it that anybody like everybody can look forward to Cole Anthony and Armando Baycott seem to be very comfortable with each other that's probably my biggest takeaway from the game easily yeah and I think that that's going to be important especially with so much uncertainty uh, surrounding how new everyone is um this team has probably the least amount of experience on it that they've had in the last several years. Um, of course, you've got Brandon Robinson and Garrison Brooks is now, you know, an upperclassman and they definitely can be the leaders of this team. But coming from, you know, having Luke May, Kenny Williams, and before them, Theo Pinson and Joel Berry, and before him, Marcus Page. It's different, and I think that that's something that they are going to need to adjust to, but I think they can adjust to that, and it helps when you have just, I mean, it's been a long time since I can remember a player getting as glowing of reviews as Cole Anthony has this early that plays for Carolina. I mean, we saw that with Zion, so it's not unheard of. But, I mean, everyone is heaping praise on this kid. And from everything I've seen, he's 
absolutely worthy of that. He seems like he's going to be incredibly special. But it's really exciting to see, you know, us have that player for once instead of someone else. Um, And I think that in a lot of ways, Carolina is going to go as far as he can take us. And from everything I've seen so far, that could be pretty far. I mean, we haven't even really gotten started yet, and I'm already talking spicy, but (laughs) I'm a big believer in Cole Anthony. Yeah, I am too. I mean, I just think that he's special in a lot of ways. Like, he's athletic. He knows how to score. I think he's a better facilitator than maybe some give him credit for. I saw some good things from Friday night for sure, and there's some other times that I've watched him, and I'm just like, I feel like he's a point guard. I'm not going to say that he's like some of the better point guards that I've seen in college or the NBA, but I feel like he's a point guard. Um, The one thing that I really like about him that I really liked about Kobe, that I really liked about Joel Berry, so on and so forth, is just I think that he has some of that, like, cutthroat mentality in him. Oh, he hates to lose. Yeah. And that was what made particularly Joel so special was, like, he hated losing so much that he was going to do everything in his power to make sure that they didn't. And to have a player like that on your team... I mean, it, it definitely gives you a bit of an extra edge because we we all kind of saw, like, I think the funny thing is with Joel, it was always so obvious. Like, it was like a complete change in his demeanor when he was just, like, entering, like, I don't give a shit, Joel. And he, he was about to take it over. And if Cole Anthony has that with all of his talent, like, whew, you don't want to be on the receiving end of that business. No, especially when you consider the fact that Cole is much more athletic than Joel. Exactly. He will posterize somebody if you push him the wrong way. That's what I mean. Like he if he has that same like killer instinct plus the like extreme athleticism to back it up, like getting on the receiving end of that could be very bad for your future prospects. Yeah, of course. Um Getting into some of the other players, I think we can both agree that the major X factor probably this year is going to be Leaky Black. Of course, he got injured last year, and it was pretty unfortunate because I feel like up to the point that he got injured, he did really well. And it's it was one of those situations that I almost felt a little bad because I feel like Kobe did so well himself that it was easy for some of that shine to be taken off of Leaky, but, like, Leaky was really good. Yeah, Leaky did really well as a freshman. I think that that kind of got hidden a little bit by how good Kobe was and all of the fanfare that Nasir Little had. But Leaky Black was really good, and he was good in so many different ways. Um, I thought defensively he was really good, his versatility is something that makes him incredibly important. And I think that's the thing that's going to be really important this year is that he can literally play anywhere from point guard to the four, basically. 
And I think it seems like right now Roy Williams kind of has him slotted in as the backup point guard. But I would be really interested, and this may come to fruition now that Brandon Robinson is out several weeks with a sprained ankle. It'll be interesting to see who starts in his spot because my preference would probably be Leaky. Yeah. And, I mean, if you're an opposing team and their point guard, like Carolina's point guard is 6'7", like what do you even do with that? Like I I wouldn't even know where to begin. So it, it, he provides such a different like weapon for Roy Williams that so many other teams just can't match up against. Um, if you think about the size of Carolina point guards pre-Kobe, you're talking like Marcus Page and Joel Berry might have been six feet. Page was probably a little taller, but I mean, Joel Berry was six feet and yeah. that was including his hair. So Nate Britt. Nate Britt was pretty small. But if you can throw Leaky out there, and I think, you know, Roy likes to experiment with different lineups, his big lineup that has Leaky as the point guard, I mean, you're talking an absolutely massive, massive lineup of dudes. And he can actually do that this year because, I mean, Sterling Manley, Baycott, so on and so forth, like, they're big dudes, and if if Roy wants to go big, he can go really big. I mean, Justin Pierce is size. Justin Pierce, like Justin Pierce, is sneaky big. Yeah, it always surprises me how tall he actually is. So yeah, like I think the the large adult son lineup is going to be one that's really fun for Roy to deploy. Um, I don't know if it'll be effective, but I'm very excited to see it. Right. And I think Brooks and Baycott are definitely going to be a big part of whether or not that works or not, because I would imagine in that lineup, you're basically just dominating players down low. And when they try to, you know, double and triple team, do whatever nonsense they want to do to try to stop it, you're going to have players like Lakey and from what I'm being told, Justin Pierce, that are going to be able to knock down shots from the outside. I mean, that was the other sneaky part about Leakey's game last year. He shot a pretty good percentage from three-point line. Yeah. It's really funny to me to think, like, at various points, Luke May was asked to play the five. Yeah. And he is shorter than Leakey, who is probably going to be asked to run the point a considerable amount this year. So it it's different. It's very, very different. But that kind of size can really affect a team that can't match up with you. And I don't know many teams that can trot that kind of size out there. So As long as Florida State isn't rolling out NBA-sized players again. They're like two seven-plus footers that they were rolling with a couple seasons ago. Like, that's not fair. You can't do that. Right. Unless you have Theo, who was handling it pretty well that one Which year. is wild. But, yeah, like, you don't get two seven-foot. Like, get, get, out, get of out of here. Get Yeah. I think what is lending itself to some weirdness, obviously, is the fact that we play Notre Dame Wednesday. Yeah. 
How weird is that? It's super weird. And I was actually looking at the schedule, and we have another ACC game in the middle of non-conference against Virginia. It's like the first week of December. Really? Yeah. It is December the 7th, and then we go back and play Wofford, Gonzaga, UCLA, Yale. I did know that because that was the game that they were going to flex if one of Virginia or Carolina was in the ACC football championship game. Right. That's weird. So It's all weird. Yep, so it'll either be played that Saturday if neither team or teams are in that game or it will be played that Sunday. But it's it's a thing either way. It is bizarre. But yeah, the the schedule is very weird and this is the first year with the 20 game ACC slate, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. Which adds a whole other level to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's just jump right into it. I mean, Tanya, you've seen the schedule. You've kind of flipped through some of these teams that we play. What do you think this team's ceiling is? I said this earlier, and I'm going to stick with it. I think their ceiling is probably a Final Four. That may be a little adventurous. Um, We don't really have the experience that I think you generally see in Final Four teams. But I also just so strongly believe in Cole Anthony that I'm like, anything is possible. This kid could lead us to the promised land of anything. Um, but that that is the benefit of optimism on November the 3rd. Uh, catch me again, you know, mid-January, and, and I might have a different answer for you. I don't I, – I want to be realistic, so I'm not going to say, like, oh, they could win a national championship, even though – I mean, they could win a national championship. Weird things happen all the time. Texas Tech played for a national championship a year ago, so, right. you know – Weird things happen, but if I'm being realistic and and kind of giving my opinion on what I think could happen, I could see this team making the Final Four. Um, is the Elite Eight Sweet 16 sort of the safer bet? I think so. Um, I think anything less than a Sweet 16 would be a disappointment. So if you're looking at, like, anywhere from a Sweet 16 to a Final Four being what I think they're capable of. But I think Final Four is probably what I see their ceiling being. What do you see their ceiling being? I think that you mentioned a good point about the anything can happen factor of the tournament. We take for granted just how weird the tournament is. When it's win or go home, I mean, UMBC beat Virginia. If that can happen, anything can happen. Right. Uh, So I I don't like to say like, oh, they couldn't possibly win a national championship because in do or die games, anyone can do and anyone can die. But, I mean, you never know. You never know. But, yeah, with that weirdness of the tournament in mind, I think I side with you in saying that their ceiling probably is a Final Four. I don't know that winning a national championship is something that anybody should really put too much stock into. If that's what you believe, 
I will let you believe that. I'm not going to argue with you like I that that's fine. But in my mind, I feel like this team is just built in such a way to where it's going to be really difficult. I will say that last year, I did not feel like that team was capable of winning a national championship. And then they went on some insane stretch where they were like the best dang team in the country for several weeks. And you were like, huh, maybe they can. So things change. Yeah. Um, They could easily get out there and surprise us all, good or bad. Yeah. Um, which is why I said, you know, check back with me in mid-January and I might have a different answer for you. But I, I just wanted to bring that up because the team now may not look capable of winning a national championship. But if they go on a streak reminiscent of last year's team, we'd be having a very different conversation. And all of that is the fun of talking before they ever play a real game. Right. And I think the other thing that I'll throw in there, and this is why I think that they could make the Final Four, I think that any team that is capable of taking the ACC regular season has the capability of making it to the Final Four. And that's been proven many years in the past. Because it's such high competition up and down the entire conference. Exactly. So there's just no ruling that out when you're talking about a team that can compete for the conference because that's the other part of what their ceiling is. I think that they could be the regular season champions. I agree. It's going to be tough because I do think that Louisville is probably legit this year. I don't know that there's anybody other than Louisville in front of Carolina that is like a guaranteed threat. And I want to stress the guarantee part because there's threats. But as far as somebody that's like absolutely going to be a pain in UNC's backside, I don't see it yet. Louisville has the experience that Carolina doesn't. Exactly. And and that's important. So if you are looking for a team that has sort of been battle tested, Louisville's probably it. I still would put Carolina up against them and feel fine about it, but they definitely have that sort of factor that Carolina doesn't have this year. Yeah, for sure. Um, what do we think the floor is? Well, I said I, th- I feel like anything less than a Sweet 16 might be a disappointment, but also... I kind of feel like that most years. I mean, if you're ranked in the top 10 coming into the season, not making the Sweet 16 feels deflating. Um, But that's what is a disappointment and what what the floor is are two different things. I think the floor, say everything goes wrong. And that, that is what I assume the floor is. Just like they... They don't have the experience necessary. Uh, injuries happen, etc. I still think they're probably top five in the ACC. Um, I don't think we're talking about like a trip to the NIT or anything, even if it doesn't go to plan. Right. But I would say a safe place to fall is 
they should make the second weekend of the tournament. Okay. okay. I'll say that's the floor. Gotcha. What do you think the floor is? I'm going to disagree a little bit. Oh, no. I'm going to say that the floor is around a 32. Yeah. like I mean, I think that's fair. That is is certainly something you run into with teams that don't have the experience that we've been talking about. Um, it can show up in the tournament. I'm I'm hoping by then, though, that they'll have gelled to the point that some of those mistakes that are inevitable in the early season. Right. Boy, I do not look forward to the takes in the early season that is just bound to have growing pains. Yeah. But Roy Williams does not coach his teams to go undefeated in the non-conference schedule. You know who you are. (laughs) We see you there. Looking at you, Duke. Um, Roy Williams does not coach his teams that way, and I'm glad he doesn't coach his teams that way. But this team is bound to have some growing pains, and I just hope that by the time March rolls around, they have worked most of those growing pains out. Yeah. Um, but I could definitely see the lack of experience biting them early in the tournament. I'm going to be optimistic and, and stick with my stick with my original answer, but I don't think you're off base. I think the one underrated issue that you can run into in the NCAA tournament is like I think the reason that Roy Williams has his teams well prepared to stay out of a round of 64 loss is usually you're going up against a team that if you're seated high enough, you have no business losing against. Therefore, if you're more talented, you can usually get by that. Or if there are some deficiencies, usually you can find a way to get by that. But there was that terrifying game against Arkansas two years ago. There was. There really was. There have been um, a few of those. Yeah. And, you know, those are going to happen. But then there's the round of 32 situations where, really, you could run into a complete mismatch. Texas Tech, Joel Berry and Theo Pinson's last year, like, that was basically Texas Tech being the exact team that Carolina did not need to face in the tournament. What was it? They just had, like, bigs for days? and yeah. Just the size was, yeah. Well, guess what, Texas? <laughs> no, it wasn't Texas. It was Texas A&M. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what, Texas A&M? We got the bigs. <laughs> Square up. We want to rematch. <laughs> <laughs> Let's roll out this big line. Right. So, yeah, I would say with that in mind, like, my realistic floor is around a 32. And, like, if they finish, and I'm with you, they could finish top five in the ACC. And I think if they do that and the round of 32 thing happens, it's not the end of the world. It's frustrating. But we've been here before recently. And, you know, it's just I could stomach it, but it, it wouldn't be by much. So that's that's kind of where I'm at. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Tanya, are there any other 
thoughts, opinions that you have before we square off against Notre Dame Wednesday? I'm excited for the season. Um, I think that this team is going to be a lot of fun. I thought last year's team was just so much fun, and it was because so many of them had fantastic personalities. But this year's team has a lot of great personality, too, I think. And once they sort of get into a groove where they can let that shine a little bit more, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited to see Cole Anthony just go, like, cold-blooded killer on some teams. And I think he will. And hopefully Brandon Robinson's ankle gets better soon. Yeah. uh, Because they need his leadership and they need his threes. Um, Never forget that we initially coined three Rob. I'm just saying, putting that out there to the universe. Everybody stole it, but that's okay. You don't have to credit me. I'm just putting it out there. Um, Anyway, (laughs) I'm excited to see this season. I'm fully aboard the Leaky Black Hype Train. I am, like, in the front row, like, blowing my fake whistle and everything. Like, I'm super excited about him, and I think he'll be really good. If I had to, like, put, like, a, like, sneaky pick, whatever, I would would say Leaky. I think he's going to surprise a lot of people this year. Yeah, for sure. One name that we didn't mention, and we're kind of running out of time, so I won't elaborate too much but i can't wait to see christian keeling play more i think he's going to be really good i think he's going to be really really important for the team he looked great at late night and he looked like he's just a really good basketball player and that is a very like basic statement but if anybody was there and saw him play i think you know what i'm talking about he just looked like he knew basketball and he's another example of Roy Williams really tapping into underutilized markets, basically, in, in getting players that he needs. Um, he had so much success with Cam Johnson that he decided that the grad transfer window was another one that he could explore again, and he ended up with Keeling and Pierce. And I don't know that they'll be as successful as Cam Johnson because, I mean, Cam was amazing. But I think that Keeling is going to be a huge part of how well Carolina does this year. Yeah, for sure. Well, we will have a post-game podcast for you after the Notre Dame game. Um, In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Tanya Bonnerant and also usually at Tar Heel Blog. You can find Brandon at THB Brandon. And you can find our articles at tarheelblog.com. Leave us a comment. Come chat with us. We love new friends. Also, be sure to sign up for Fan Pulse if you haven't already. The link is on the front page of the website. If you're not familiar with what Fan Pulse is, it's a weekly survey that goes out. And we'll send out questions regarding you know, what you feel your confidence is towards the team. And there will be a few other national basketball-based questions there, too. So, yeah, be sure to go sign up for that. Yeah, that is something that SB Nation is doing that's really fun, and I think it'll be great for basketball as well. So we'll be back after Wednesday's game. In the meantime, go Heels. Go Heels.